You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by uh, the, the host of this show, John Syracuse. I'm the co-host, Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 37. Today is October 7th, 2011. And uh, we would like to briefly mention our sponsors before we tell you more about them later. Uh, the first sponsor is MailChimp.com. The second sponsor is a new one, Squarespace.com. We, and we will tell you more about them later. Hi, John. How are you? I'm okay. It's a sad week. It's a sad, very sad week. Yeah. I, I think that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Because even before follow-up, breaking the format. Probably a good, a good occasion to, to break with the format. Yeah, because the because the follow up is, tends to be kind of flip, and this is not flip. So right. So we'll do this first. Everybody who is uh, everybody who is listening to this uh, live or within recent days knows that this is uh, the week that uh, earlier this week Wednesday, uh, Steve Jobs passed away. Uh, but in case somebody's listening to this down the road, they may not know, you know, the time frame. So is worth mentioning that. Um, and uh, we actually got, did a little 5x5 five five special where different people, some of them hosts, some of them just friends of the network, uh, we, we did a little, a little uh, I guess you call it a thank you, a tribute. And uh, John, you didn't, you didn't participate in that. And uh, you, you said you wanted to talk about it here today. So I knew this was going to be a heavy, heavy show. I tried to participate. Like I recorded a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, first, I tried just reading stuff that I'd written ahead of time. And then I tried uh, just talking extemporaneously and it and then i listened to it i actually edited some of it to see if well maybe i can edit this into shape but just never i'm just not good at talking to nobody i guess it's a it's a uh, skill i don't have but uh, i'm gonna tell you so we did a show about like was it a whole show about steve jobs i think when he retired i was just trying to look up the episode number but i, I don't remember what it was uh, but do you remember that one yeah i do i'm trying to think about when that when that actually was uh, we'll find it and put it in the show notes. But that was when he retired. And I think I did the whole show on it just because, as I said in that show, I, I didn't know Steve Jobs the man. I just knew Steve Jobs the CEO of Apple. Was, and, that, was that the next big move? Could that have been it? The future of Apple without Steve Jobs? What decisions? Yeah, that the, sounds, that sounds the Jobs right. Jobs 2 era. I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Uh, and since I, did, I only knew the CEO, when he retired as CEO, that's like him disappearing from my life because the personal Steve Jobs is not a part of my life, just the the corporate Steve Jobs was. So we talked a lot about the corporate Steve Jobs and that show and and the future of Apple and what he did at Apple and all that stuff. And and I said at the time that I thought it was really sad. And I remember I I also said that I wanted to write something because when he retired, everyone was writing stuff like, you know, the same similar things that you're seeing now that people want to write like what he meant to the company and his legacy and how Apple would be without him. But everything I could think of to write sounded like a eulogy, but he wasn't dead. So it was kind of inappropriate for right. me to be writing something like, oh, you know, as if he's gone, but he's not gone. And, and we didn't know how long he would be around, right? Like, so I couldn't write something that sounded like a eulogy and then have him live for another five years. <laughs> uh, and so I figured, well, I'll do that thing that the, the quote unquote real journalists do is you write the eulogy or the obituary ahead of time. And... Uh, so that's that's actually when you're saying you wrote you wrote your piece that was just put out on Ars Technica. No, because I, I that's what I said. Maybe I should do that, but oh, I well, you didn't. Bring, I you couldn't bring do myself it. to do it. I couldn't. I 
a couple times I sat down, I'm like, oh, I'm going to write that Steve Jobs thing that I wanted to write. That sounded like you will just have it in reserve. I'll have it ready. But I, I just I just couldn't do it. I don't know. It just wasn't I just wasn't motivated to do it. And, and the retirement thing had come and gone. And I read a whole bunch of stuff that other people did. And that, that always demotivates me reading what other people do. I'm like, yeah, they said everything I was going to say anyway. I really have nothing to add. So when the, you know, when the news that he had died came along, I think I saw it on Twitter first, but it was pretty instantaneously blanketing all possible media that I have access to. Right. As you can imagine, all my news feeds, email, Twitter feeds, I am everything. Then I had to kind of scramble to write something, but at least at that point, I felt like it was easier. And as I said in, in the the, show, the next big move show, I thought that I had resigned myself to him being gone when I wrote this thing for Macworld ages ago. It was like maybe even years ago. And then again, when he retired, I'm like, well, I guess there was more there. It was just emotional and sad. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll talk. We did a whole show on his retirement. I'm like, all right, that's it. It's all. It's out of my system. I've, I've come to terms with it. But then when he died, you know, apparently I had not come to terms with it because it was just like, it was, it was like even worse. It's every time that some event has happened, it's been even worse. Thankfully, this is the last one, but it was just, it was really bad. I don't know how you felt about it, but I, I was surprised by how much it, it affected me, especially since like, well, so what if he's still alive, but he's not at the company. But I guess, I guess the, the, the thing about it was that even if he's not the CEO of Apple, if he's still around, then you could always be like when Apple does something you'd be like, boy, I wonder what Steve thinks of this. And maybe someone will, will call him and get and get a line from him. Or <laughs> he would be at like anniversary ceremonies. Like, you, wouldn't you always want to know what does Steve Jobs think of this? Even if he's not the CEO of the company, he's still a person in the world yeah. and he's still famous. And, and maybe he'd be doing more press now that he was retired. You know, maybe he would not feel as constrained about it. You know? So anyway, I, I wrote something for ours. Uh, it was fairly short by my standards. Um, and when I was trying to figure out both times when I was trying to figure out what to write, the, the, thing I, the only thing I could think of was that it's hard to write anything about Steve Jobs, the phenomenon, or that like his his corporate legacy, his accomplishments. That's just too big. I'm, I'm, you'd need to be, you know, like Walter Isaacson, who's writing the authorized biography. That's going to be a thick book, I imagine, or the big articles in the New York Times or time magazine special issue or whatever that's too big i'm not it's too big for me to address so i figured the only way i could talk about the topic was to make it to go the other way and make it as small as possible so that's what i did i wrote about my personal yeah steve jobs affected my personal life which which is what a lot of people did online they didn't a few people try to write generalities about what steve jobs meant to the industry or they ended on that point or whatever but most people said here's what steve jobs meant to me personally uh, and that's what I think has been touching to to read on the web are these, all these little personal stories of how uh, Steve Jobs and his company affected the lives of so many other people. And the, the biggest, obviously, are the ones who are like, I'm a developer. I write Apple software. Everything I do in my professional life and my livelihood wouldn't exist if Steve Jobs hadn't started Apple. So those people have the, the most. But even even the people like me who are kind of tangentially touched, like it's not our, it's not our livelihood so much, but. They affect us in more personal ways. So that that's what I wrote in my uh, in the in the thing at ours. I'll put the link in the show notes and people can read it. There's a great uh, piece, really great piece. Yeah, I, I got a lot of uh, compliments on it, and, and uh, I I considered trying to put links to all the other great things that I've read, but as I started collecting the links, there's just too many of them. like uh, there's not a single person whose blog I read or whose site I I go on frequently who doesn't have something up about Steve Jobs, probably multiple ones. So. I don't think you're hurting for things to read on the web about uh, this topic, and there's a lot of good ones out there. 
don't know. I, what, what I tried to do when I was recording stuff last night was like, maybe I'll try just summarizing what I wrote about. Uh, and that didn't work that well, but I'm actually going to take another run at it here. Did you read my thing? I did. So one of the problems I had with that thing was I was trying to come up with a title. And I, in, in my little scratch file, I just called it Steve Jobs. And it was great in the days when I had my little staff blog on, on Ars Technica and then the, the fat bit section. Uh, that was the name of my little corner of the site. And I could use those super obscure titles, you know, where it's just Steve Jobs, right? But I think it was like last year, maybe the year before that, Ars changed its site design so that everything shows up on the front page. No matter which section it originates from, it's just like a big linear stream of articles, which is right. great as a reader of the site. I like that much better. But as a writer on the site who often wants to write obscure, weird things, there's pressure to have something show up on the homepage of our Technica with a headline that makes sense. Because the last thing you want is millions of people clicking through on it and saying, this is not what I thought it was going to be or whatever. So I had to, I don't know if you say dumb down, but clarify uh, Make less nice. The, the title, uh, and I called it Steve Jobs, A Personal Remembrance or something like that. Just because, as I said, if, if you don't want to read someone's personal account of what Steve Jobs meant to them, don't click through. If you just right. call it Steve Jobs, it's like, well, what is this? Everyone's going to click that. It could be a 17-page biography. It could, it could be anything. Uh, if you have like an individual blog, like Gruber can get away with a title that just says Steve Jobs because people would understand in context what it is. But the front page of our stack has stories about gaming, about you know, law or uh, science and lots of other stuff. So you have to sort of point out what you want it to be. But another title I was thinking of, like when I was trying to think of titles, I got to make this more clear, is uh, like something like My Two Lessons from Steve Jobs, which I definitely didn't want to do because I did not want anyone to think this was going to be one of those top five best ways to supercharge your XY, you know, those things with the lists. Yeah. Those are bad. And, you know, but really I had two things that I wanted to talk about. And the first one was my childhood remembrance of what Steve Jobs, uh, it, it, how, how Steve Jobs influenced my coming of age, sort of. And, and I, I mentioned I had this picture on the wall that I'd cut out of Macworld magazine that had the Macintosh team on it. And, and it was basically the realization that a small group of really smart, dedicated people can do some amazing thing and change the world. Uh, and, and even before that, the, the idea that the world was a changeable place, that when, you, when you're a little kid, you think like, well, this is the world and this is what it is. And it's always been this way. And even if they tell you about history and about sailing ships and you're like, yeah, but this is, you know, this is the world. And then the Mac came out and it was like, you remember before the Mac what computers were like, and now, you're, now you see what the Mac is like, and it's, it's clear that this is going to change the world, and that some people actually made this thing. They, there wasn't a Mac. They came up with the idea, and they created it, and all those people could fit in this little picture that I had on my wall. So I, I'd cut it out, I taped it up there, and it stayed there, I think, until I left for college. And so that was my childhood realization that, that uh, uh, you know, particularly engineers, nerds, my kind of people, the people who I was relating to, could change the world. And I would just stare at that picture for ages. Now, I hadn't looked at that picture probably, maybe probably since like my, my room got cleaned out when I left for college and my parents converted into a spare bedroom and removed all the millions of posters and comics and other things I had taped to my wall with scotch tape, which they cursed me for as they had to scrape all the scotch tape off and, and repaint everything. But when I, I, I look at the, I'm going to try to pull up the webpage here. When I look at this webpage now, I put the picture at the very top of the webpage. I actually scanned it. Out of a mag, out of the magazine that it came in. Uh, this is from MacWorld issue number one, the premiere issue of MacWorld, which was actually released with the original Mac. 
Uh, and I have multiple copies of it. And one of the copies I sacrificed to cut out the picture and that sort of died as it faded on my wall and right. crinkled into nothingness. But the other one is still in the magazine. So I put my magazine on the scanner and scanned it. And that's the picture up there. And I said, look at this picture. It's just amazing. Uh, the feelings that it triggers inside me just because that image is burned on my brain. And I hadn't realized it until I looked at it again. Like if you were trying to program me to like kill the president or something, you could use one of these pictures. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize that it had such deep hooks in me. I stared and I'm like, what is it about that picture? And I keep looking back in it and it's because it was on my wall for my entire time growing up and you just, it's just imprinted on me. Uh, but anyway, that, that was my, uh, my lesson number one, uh, you know, from growing up and it's not particularly profound or interesting. Everybody, when you're a kid, you learn all sorts of things about life and about the way it works. And it's only, it's only important to you because this was the thing that taught you that lesson when you were growing up. And in the grand scheme of things, Adults will say that intellectually they understand that, yes, people can invent things and change the world. Uh, but then the larger point I had, and the one thing, this is what I was trying to get at with the big, with the big point. I wanted to make up my story small, but my, my big thing was like, what is it about Steve Jobs that's special? What, what is his most, the most important thing that he's done? And I, in true to form, I always want to think of the thing that other people aren't thinking of. So I'm not going to say, oh, you know, he made the iPod or iPhone or he made technology accessible to people or so on and so forth. I think maybe this is not the most important thing that he did, but it's the, it's the most profound, I think, the most, the most unique. Because lots of people have made amazing products in different genres, not in technology, but, you know, in other, in other areas or in medicine or any other field. So certainly Jobs is the top of the technology field and doing that, but other people have done great things like that in other fields. But the unique thing that I think jobs did across all fields was he proved that the, the grim Dilbert future that we all Mm. know about doesn't have to be a reality. It doesn't have to be that way. And in my adult life, this is the first time I can think of that, that this happened because I think of all other large organizations or large groups of people that I've dealt with from the government to big universities to working in corporate America or even something like science. You know, they say uh, for scientists, they usually do their best work before they're like 30 years old. I forget how old Einstein was when he did all of his work uh, on relativity and everything, but he was shockingly young. Uh, And certainly for athletes, just simply because they age, they, you know, their, their best years are when they're younger. And same thing with organizations. It's like, yeah, the company does some amazing thing, two guys in a garage or whatever, and, and it grows like gangbusters, and then it gets to be a big company, and it's like you don't expect that from any them anymore. Uh, and in the worst case, they become just a horrible horrible place to, to work and a horrible company to deal with, and they get filled with middle, middle managers and employees whose motivation no longer aligns in any way with the supposed co- mission of the corporation. I don't know how much you worked in corporate America. I guess you did contracting, but no, I was, anybody I who was works in, corporate in a big America company for, has seen this, right? For a decade or more, like in, in the cube. Yeah. Um, although I don't see Merlin didn't, I don't think Merlin ever worked in big corporations, but he, he had it. He has a keen sense of this. And even in this little company that he worked at with Dave and then that noise that he makes mm-hmm. before he says the word Dave that I can't do. <laughs> Some people have a keener sense of this than others, and nerds tend to have a pretty keen sense of it. But just think of any endeavor involving large numbers of people. We just assume that, oh, yeah, once you get a lot of people in there, it's bozo time, right? And Apple is the first example I can think of where a humongous corporation didn't didn't act like one. Acted, it was better than the startups, acted better than 
the small group of people. And the, the most amazing thing about this is that the original Apple was like two guys in a garage. They make the Apple one and they make the Apple two. And the company right. goes IPO. Everybody's rich. Everybody, you know, it's an amazing success story. Steve Jobs is on the cover of Time magazine in 1982. Pre-Mac, right? But look at these whiz kids. They are the kings of the world. Right. And then the company gets big and it's, it's too big. And it's like 83. It's like, well, you know, Apple was great when it was little, did that Apple too, but now it's a big company, right? And people like a big company. The magazines say now it's a serious company. It's a competitor to IBM, which is also a very serious company, very important, very big. And to do the Mac project, Jobs had to, well, steal a project from Jeff Raskin, (laughs) internal politics. But he was cultivating the idea that the Mac team were rebels. So he's got that that pirate flag on top of the Banley 3 building. This is within the big behemoth corporate monster that is 1982-83 Apple, right? So even then, in 1982-83, Jobs is like, the Apple's too big. We need to we need to get the small team here that's going to get back to our roots and really do this great project. Uh, and, and, they, and the Mac came out of that. Now, little did he know how big Apple would actually grow. Of course, the year after the Mac comes out, he, he gets kicked out of the company, which what I, I would say is proof of the, you know, the, the culmination of the grim Dilbert future is that <laughs> the company gets big enough and dumb enough to eject Steve Jobs, right. who admittedly was a bit of a uh, a nut job back in those days, but it, I don't know how someone could produce the Macintosh and say, we got to get that guy out of this company because we don't like those types of things. Uh, so then he comes back and Apple now is just humongous. It's almost as big. It's the second biggest, well, the second biggest company in the U S next Exxon mobile. I think, I think they trade places uh, actually, but yeah, at least right now today, I think it is the second. And, and this next to an oil company, company, an oil company, you know, yeah, not, not exactly. You and know, you look at you look at what role oil plays and has played in a global economy, and that's that's the number one company, and number two is Apple. And this this giant behemoth, which is just so comically larger than the Apple of 1982 that Steve Jobs thought was just too big and too corporate and too full of bozos, this is the company that is producing even more amazing things than the Apple too. You know. Uh, things as amazing as the Mac, uh, and not just one of them, but multiple ones. I, I saw uh, Scott Adams, the guy who actually writes Dilbert, speaking of Dilbert, on his blog. Uh, Scott Adams is a little bit of a nut job, too, but he's funny. And he had a little post about uh, Steve Jobs where he said that he, he originally thought that Steve Jobs was just like uh, in the right place at the right time or it was luck at, when he you know had these amazing successes. But then he did it again and again and again. And once you do like the fifth great thing, you're like, okay, this is not luck, right? And so this is, I think, is the most profound thing that Steve Jobs did. It's proving that hum- large groups of humans can still do amazing things. Now, also part of the lesson is that to make that happen, there are going to be some things that aren't so nice. Some people don't like Apple's corporate policies. Some people who work there say for, for all the admiration the company gets on the outside and the inside, it's a little bit more like corporate America than they thought it would be. Uh, but the things that Apple does as an organization are, are amazing things and are unlike the things that, that governments do, that the companies like IBM or Microsoft do. We see it all around us. We will eventually do the show on what's wrong with Microsoft, but that's just typical giant corporate malaise. You get too big. Everything gets ossified. You get 12 layers of management in between everything. You can't make big dramatic moves, even with a strong leader like Bill Gates saying, we got to turn the whole ship. We got to be the internet company. The internet tidal wave is coming. That's just like barely enough to keep you alive. It's not enough to make that, mm. that's not your iPod. That's not your iPad or your iPhone. Uh, so that's what I think. 
if not the most important thing that Steve Jobs did, at least the thing that the least, uh, the most important thing that people aren't talking about. Uh, and it gives me hope for things like government, especially with the government. I don't want to make this into a government show. Everyone hates politics, and I don't want to talk about it either. But the idea that a government is fundamentally broken and a large number, large groups of people just can't do anything smart. They're just inherently dumb. They 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 sink to the level of the the dumbest person involved. I think Apple shows that large groups of people really can do things. And and you have to ascribe that to Steve Jobs because when he wasn't there, Apple was big and was just screwing up left and right. And when he got there, Apple got even bigger and did things even better. So that's that's what I was, that's much longer than reading the 900 words I wrote about Steve Jobs. But those are my two points. One was the personal story about uh, that picture on my wall and what Steve Jobs meant to me. And the other one was that what Steve Jobs means to humanity. And I think that that sounds highfalutin and everything and maybe uh, overwrought, but... If you think about it, maybe someone can give me a, a better example of uh, another large organization that's acted uh, as well as Apple has. But it's the first thing that I've ever seen in my adult life, in my jaded, cynical adult life where I'm not the naive kid who is just realizing that the world can be changed. First thing I've seen where a large group of people really do something amazing over and over and over again. And, and, and the thing about it is that the streak is so long, at that point you're like, if he lived if he lived forever, he was immortal. I think Apple continued to execute like that forever and ever. Like it was, it was a sustainable thing. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a surprise one time thing. You got lucky right place, right time. And then you're coasting on your, your previous victory. It's just amazing. Uh, Someone, someone points out Pixar, but I think we've already done someone in the chat room, but I think we've already done Pixar. I would say that they have a system for making great movies or rather they have a system for not making bad movies. Again, I've still never seen cars, have not seen cars two yet. And I apologize for that, but, uh, it's close, but then I mean, Pixar is also related to Steve Jobs, So, you know, I would describe that to him as well. Uh, if you want to do sponsor, you can, I think I have maybe one more thing to do about Steve jobs, but I'm, this is all I have to say about my thing that I wrote. It was a good piece. I really do recommend everybody, everybody ready. It's, it's always, it's always very interesting to me to see what people like you will will say or write about it. And it's always, almost always, very different from what I'm expecting. Does that make any sense? Like this, that wasn't exactly what I thought you would, you would write. Uh, but I was... What, what did you think I would write? You know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure I can put my finger on it exactly. Um, it was it was more personal, maybe, maybe than I was expecting. Not like I didn't expect it to reflect on your life in some way, but it, uh, you know, you're you're talking about your childhood and things like that. I, I just thought it was great. Different. I, I you know. had to rein myself in and not make it even more personal. Really? That's why. But, uh, that why? Was, for, why? Like not I said, that was the angle I, I didn't want to do. You know, I don't want to write what I've seen other people write. And I knew everyone was going to write. Here's the list of Steve Jobs' greatest accomplishments. And, and those are, I'm not saying it's bad to write those things. Someone needs to write them. But I, I just feel like other people are writing that are going to write that better than I do. And the obvious things that Steve Jobs was about, about, uh, you know, technology serving people and not the other way around. And the, it just and, you know, the, the perfectionism and the elegance and bringing design to I knew everyone was going to talk about that, and I didn't want to be the person doing that same thing, but worse, which I know I would be. So I had to come at a different angle, and my different angle is the personal story, which you can't fault people for doing that. I see lots of personal stories. That's their personal story. They're going to say what they have to say, what it meant to them, and, and I find that touching to read, and I think uh, people relate to that. And then I also wanted to find the 
the one larger thing that I didn't think was going to be talked about as much in the other articles because people will be spending too much time on the more obvious things. So uh, what I was resisting and when I was recording stuff last night, I, I, I found myself like I was listening to what I was recording. I was like, what are you, are you telling your life story? Like, don't turn it into biography. Yeah, John I know. I, I, I hear that. Right. And I didn't, you know, and then I was this age and then I got this thing and then are you talking about Steve Jobs anymore? Or are you just talking about yourself? So I really wanted to rein it in a little bit. Well, uh, and, and I job. think other people feel the same inclination, like uh, uh, Gruber, uh, my uh, mental doppelganger over there. Look what he wrote about Jobs. It was not about how all uh, Jobs. It was not a list of accomplishments because I don't think he wanted to write that either. It was, it was kind of a personal story, but it was kind of a personal story about Steve Jobs. But it was not perhaps what people were expecting if they expected just a run of the mill. You know, I am the uh, the obituary writer for New York Times. I got to write about Steve Jobs because the people who are doing that are going to do a great job at it. And it's important to have that. And I read and enjoyed those articles, but that's not how individuals relate to Steve Jobs. So Gruber writes Daring Fireball a lot more like an individual author, a lot more like a diary, really, or a journal than like he's a reporter on assignment for a magazine. All right, anyway, you you're going to do a sponsor. Sorry. Yeah, okay, sure. Um first sponsor this week is uh Squarespace. Squarespace is a brand new sponsor for us and uh, we're really excited about them and and hopefully you guys will be too. Uh they're squarespace.com, the secret behind exceptional websites. Uh Squarespace is what is it? It's a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog or portfolio. It's really for anybody. It doesn't matter how big or small your website is. Uh, and, and, and these guys are really, really great. People who listen to this show, they tend to, uh, to be detail-oriented. Uh, what's great about Squarespace is it lets you control every single detail of your entire site. And you can do it. And, you know, many of us are programmers listening to this. But that doesn't mean that we're good designers or that we even want to bother with design. And Squarespace makes it really, really simple to create something that's beautiful uh, completely customizable, but you can do it all just by pointing and clicking. You don't need to master Photoshop and CSS uh, in order to make something amazing. And uh, they have an app that's out for iPhone and iPad, and uh, there's a brand new Android app as well. And uh, these are hand-built custom apps. They let you check your site. They let you post. They let you manage comments. And you can see very, very detailed statistics all while on the go, all in real time. Uh, so they have a 14-day trial. And uh, you can get started in only 30 seconds. You go to squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 And you can go there and you'll get special deals. And uh, there's something that uh, you can use when you go there if you want to. Uh, you, can, uh, you can use a coupon code. It is a special coupon code just for this show. Uh, emotion chip. Emotion chip. One word. And what that will do is that will give you uh, 20% off for your first six months. Squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 Emotion chip. You and the Star Trek. So uh, the ever-thoughtful Kieran Healy in the chat room posted a link to Wikipedia that's a, it's like a formal description of the, of the Dilbertization of the world that oh. I was talking about. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce it. Routinizing charisma? That's got to be how it's pronounced. Uh, I'll read from the page here. Routinizing charisma is the process by which charismatic authority is succeeded by bureaucratic bureaucracy controlled by a rationally established authority or by a combination of traditional and bureaucratic authority. So is the idea that you have a charismatic leader and his spirit uh, goes into the organization and then it's 
eventually replaced by what seemed like good, solid business practices. Like when you were a small company, it's great to go on this one dude's whims. But now the adults have to come in. That's what they called it when they brought in the people to run Apple because Jobs wasn't CEO back then. He was like president or whatever. You know, you need adult supervision. So the real business people need to come in and this I show you how you run a real company. Uh, and that, that's what kills big companies. Uh, so I put that link in the show notes. People can read the entire Wikipedia page on routinizing charisma. Uh, I have one more tangent on Steve Jobs or we can go on to follow up. And no, let's hear it. So the other tangent that I couldn't work into the article was a lot of the things I saw that people linked up stuff. You know, here's a great Steve Jobs' greatest hits. So here's him introducing the iPhone, uh, stuff like that. And w- one of them I saw linked around a lot was one that I, I think I put in the show notes a while back was Steve Jobs at WWDC. And it was when he'd come back to Apple after Apple had acquired Next. But I don't even think he was ICEO yet. Maybe he was ICEO. Remember that like interim CEO? Oh, yeah. But this might have been even before that. I think this is before he was even ICEO. He had not yet uh, kicked out. Uh, what's his name? Who was the guy he kicked out? Uh, Emilio? Yeah, it had to be Emilio. Uh and so he he had a session at WWC, which is like, Steve Jobs, I'll just go up on the stage and, you know, you'll ask some questions and we'll just chat. And that's what happened for like 45 minutes. People from the stage asked, and this was Apple in 1997, which wasn't doing so hot. So you can imagine some of the questions were kind of contentious and there right. was the clone, the clone stuff going on, stuff like that. But if you listen to that, and I would highly recommend that I should find that and put it in the show notes. It's actually a YouTube uh, video uh, and a long YouTube video, but I would recommend watching it. And the sound quality is not great. But what he does is he lays out his vision of the future of computing. And with the exception of some of the weird stuff around the clones that didn't quite come out the way he described, a lot of it, it sounds crazy, like that Apple could branch out into uh, you know network-connected electronics and, and how, what computing would be like in the future. And you know, If you're back at Apple this time, Apple can barely stay in business, and it's in the PC business. Oh, and there's the Newton thing, which I think had just been canned. And he's laying out this this grand vision of what the future would be like. It sounds ridiculous. Like, yeah, whatever, Joker, get off the stage. Uh, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> but people look at it now in retrospect. Oh my God! You know, like, what a Jobs, visionary. He 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 predicted the future. He what, what a visionary. You know, he could see farther than we could. Uh, and this, I like I, I like listening to that, and I like uh, watching the older videos like that. But what I don't like is the idea that Steve Jobs has some sort of supernatural power that people would say like he he could see the future we couldn't he he's special and magical it's almost like it's an excuse for why you are not Steve Jobs because well Steve Jobs is special and magical and obviously I can't be that uh that's I don't like that I don't like ascribing because once you invoke the supernatural you are checking out of reality as far as, far as I'm concerned so it's like like I said it's an excuse for why why you can't do that and you stop thinking about it critically you stop thinking about how he actually did it uh in reality i think this is the old alan k saying that the best way to predict the future is to invent it and that's what he did he didn't predict what the future would be like because he's a nostradamus he said what he would like the future to be like and then he made it that way that's why it matches what he said because he made it that way <laughs> he was the one he was the one who did it it's he didn't predict the future like a visionary i will predict the future and then you just sit back and cross your arms and you wait and it turns out way different than you predicted well it won't turn out different if you are the guy who makes all that stuff you know and obviously not with his own little hands but like he 
kicked out the other CEO, took over the company, and just set to work doing all the things that he thought should be done. And so it's no coincidence that, his, that the future matched what he said because it was his plan. And th that's, I think, what people who are close to Apple or who know about Apple admire the most about Steve Jobs. People who don't know anything about him, like, you know, just random people who saw that he died in the news are like, that's that guy. He must have been so smart. He made those iPods and those iPads. Boy, what a smart guy. He's magical. It's like Einstein or Edison. You just, they become uh, a character in history and not a, a real person. But the people who follow Apple and who have been with him and have known him uh, for his entire career, what I think we admire about him is the same thing we admire about, like, like uh, the only other place I can imagine this happening or this happens frequently is, is athletics, where People admire uh, Michael Jordan, for example, because he set a clearly set an audacious goal. He was going to be the best basketball player ever. He was going to win every single championship. He was going to score the most points in every single game. And then he then he actually did that. It's setting an ambitious goal and then executing and accomplishing it. And that's what Steve Jobs did. And that's what we admire about him. The, the idea that he he dreamed these dreams that many people had, like I imagine computing could be this way. And then he actually made it happen. And it's that the goal setting and then the, the execution and the accomplishment of the goals, the triumph, the, his personal triumph of accomplishing what he wanted to do is, is an inspiration to us. And not because we think he's magical, but because it's like, no matter what you're thinking of, if, if your goal is to, uh, I, or whatever your goal happens to be, to run a marathon, and then, you, and then you accomplish that, that feels great. And we like seeing movies about people who do that. They, they set some really ambitious goal and then they achieve it. That's what we want to see. And Steve Jobs had perhaps grander dreams than any of us and actually accomplish them. Uh, and like I said, you see that in sports, uh, Michael Jordan, Lance Armstrong, Michael Phelps, the people who had big dreams and then, and then actually did them, right? That is a, that's a better lesson to take away from Steve Jobs than he's special and an outlier and, and we, no one else can do what he did. Everybody can do what he did on a different scale or in a different context. You shouldn't check out from thinking that that's a different reality and that he's magical or supernatural. He's just a person like we are. He just, you know, it's hard work uh, and you have to make sacrifices and it's not always pretty and there's going to be stumbles along the way, but, but he had that crazy goal that he's, you know, his whole life he's had these crazy goals. The Mac was a crazy goal, the, the iPod, everything. Uh, but he actually did it. Uh, that, that I couldn't find a way to work into what I wanted to write about but I, I just wanted to point that out I don't like I don't like the uh, deification of Steve Jobs I like it better to I like it better when you recognize him as a person and what he has uh, and, and take the lesson away that it, it's a it's a story of triumph just like any other possibly smaller story of triumph it's just the things he did are different Still a great guy. Yeah, that that's the, the the celebrity angle. Something I could have talked about, but didn't. For people who are celebrities, and he was kind of a celebrity. This happens more with actors and singers and stuff. But you see all the interviews with them. You listen to all their music. You watch all their movies. You buy all their products, whatever it is. And you start to think that you know the person, right? And that's that's the celebrity thing when you see them you're like you if you see your favorite celebrity in the street like uh, i know everything about this person i know the biography i read their life story i've seen a million interviews with them 
it feels like they're your friend, but they don't know you because they've never seen you or met you. And so you have this, you have this weird desire to be like, I know you so much. I bet we could be great friends if you only knew me, which is almost certainly not the case. Well, and in many cases, they, they feel like you are already their friend. I bet that there are people who are listening to you who listen to every single episode of the show and they've listened to however 30, 40 of these. And if they were to meet you in an elevator, they'd be like, oh, you know, remember that time we were talking about? And you're like, well, I, was, I wasn't talking to you about that. <laughs> I was talking to, to Dan about that. But, you, you know, they, they are part of this conversation because they're listening to it and they're in an intimate way. And for somebody like Steve Jobs, you've been using things that that person has inspired or created and, and you've been paying attention to things that they've said for, for decades. So you feel like you have a connection to that person, even though in, from that person's standpoint, they have, like you're saying, they have no clue who you are. I had the same experience when I was uh, guesting on the uh, Stack Exchange podcast recently yeah. with uh, Joel Spolsky. Oh, we got to uh, get that in the Jeff show Howard. notes. That was great. Yeah. So those guys, I've listened. I've I've been reading what Joel's been writing on the web since you know for a decade, and I've listened to all their podcasts. And I felt like I and you know even even this like you communicate with them on Twitter occasionally or whatever. I felt like I knew them. I felt like hey, we're buddy pals, but they didn't know me from a hole in the wall. It's just it's an easy trap to to fall into. I'm going to put uh, this in the, this is uh, the Snack Exchange podcast number 20. I'll put this in the show notes. Great listen. Yeah. And so I find myself with this inclination too, because when somebody dies, the people who are most affected by it are the people who personally knew him. And to a first approximation, nobody personally knew him. You know, only it's a very small compared to the number of people who think they know Steve Jobs because they buy all these Apple products and have read all about him and stuff like that. So you find yourself wanting, w- wishing, Wishing you had been personal friends with Steve Jobs. He's like, and now he's gone, and now we can never be friends, which is a pretty irrational. No, because you were never going to be friends with him anyway, right? He can't be friends with the whole world. Uh, even, you know, I saw some stories that even the people who did know him were all trying to see him before he died, and he was very particular about even the set of people he was, you know, going to talk to. And right, I made that too. He made choices that you would say, well, why would you make that? Like, one of the people who he talked to was, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, was a a venture capitalist for the early Apple. And I don't know what their relationship was, but I can imagine like the reason he might have talked with him was that back when I was starting Apple, uh, starting Apple, I needed somebody who believed in me and who would give me money to do my thing. And this was the guy who, this was the venture capitalist who believed in me, right? That's the guy who Steve Jobs wants to talk to. He doesn't want to talk to his adoring fans who bought like, and not that he doesn't like you or anything, but that, that feeling that, that sense of loss that now I can never be friends with Steve Jobs makes no sense on a rational basis. But I think a lot of us feel it simply because we felt like he, he either already was our friend or could have been our friend or we would have a lot to talk about. Or, you know what I mean? That, that, that's, a weird, that's a weird feeling. Uh, and I think, uh, I think we're all feeling it. Yeah. That's all I think I have to say about Jobs unless you have any, anything you want to add or any questions or any other things you want to bring up. What do you what do you think? I mean, without getting too much into speculating on the future, what do you think the immediate challenges are going to be? Not for Apple as a business, but for the people at Apple. I mean, I've got a few friends who work at Apple. You probably do too. I talked to a couple of them, and 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 for them, they were you know like there were people who were telling me oh you know that. You might, you know, you might imagine, well, people would just be down or they would just be depressed. And obviously people are sad, but if anything, the people that I know and what they've told me being at Apple, uh, is that, is that they're actually inspired. They're trying, you know, they're trying to write better code. They're working later. 
you know, they're, they're staying longer. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're doing more. Yeah. This, this is when the, the danger starts for Apple as a company where it's obviously they're obviously they're going to have the spirit of Steve jobs will sort of uh, imbue everything that they do. And, and that's good, but you, there's the danger when the guy is not there, when he's not alive anymore, that he becomes uh, like like a martyr. And like, yeah, it. You can't. I was saying, yes, you don't want to DFI Steve Jobs. Like everyone there wants to respect him and say, what would Steve think of this? And we should do something to make Steve proud. But when Steve is not actually there to tell you what the heck he actually likes and what actually does make him proud, other people can co-opt that either intentionally or unintentionally, and you know, people start doing things in his name or saying, well, this is what Steve would have wanted. And when the actual person is there and when he's so like down to earth and always cutting straight to the bone and just like from everything I've read of all his interactions, he was the first one to like, would be the first one to cut the wind out of the sails of this legend of Steve Jobs. He comes in, he tells you what he wants, tells you what's good, tells you what's not. uh, And it's not always what you want to hear and doesn't always make you happy. And sometimes he's, uh, you know, a hard ass and, when he's not there and he's just like the we should do something to make Steve Jobs proud, you have to be very careful that it doesn't drift, that you don't start to have a little bit of, you know, it doesn't take on a, a new meaning slowly over time or other people don't. You know, everyone's going to try to claim him like I'm doing what Steve Jobs would want. No, actually, Steve Jobs want this and he's not there anymore and he can't tell you. Uh, so so that's that's the long term danger. And short term, I think that phenomenon I was talking about where like we all think we're Steve Jobs friend and we want to hang out with him and stuff like that. That's magnified eight billion fold when you routinely see him in the hallway, and occasionally he does come over to your desk and looks at something, and that's like the highlight of your year, right? Uh, now imagine what lost their feeling because they weren't his friends either, right? They were just his coworkers. But that's so much closer relationship than guy who buys iPods a lot. Uh, so I, I bet they're feeling that even more acutely because then that really is a real loss for them. He was, you know, he was there either directly or indirectly shaping them as individuals and commenting on their work and ju- judging it, and if they if that's something that they wanted, which I imagine they would if they work at Apple, that they respect his opinion, that that feedback is gone now. So that's got to be a really big loss for them. What you got next? I think we can go to follow-up now. Okay. Follow that heavy stuff with, with the lightest possible stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know which I should start with here. Uh, before, we, uh, this is kind of follow-up, but the last bit of Steve Jobs thing was that I wanted to mention that my mother called me at work when Steve Jobs, the, the day after Steve Jobs oh, wow. died, she was on top of the news cycle to to offer her condolences. Uh, and the, the funny thing that she said, maybe we'll get to if we have time for stuff later, is that uh, she was mentioning, uh, it's just so soon after he left, she doesn't have the timeline exactly now, but yeah, it was like, how many months was it? One month? Two months? Yeah, it was not, it was not long. It was not long. Uh, and she mentioned it was just after that that new announcement thing, because that was covered in the mainstream news, you know, the iPhone 4S announcement. And one of the things she mentioned is, but, but people were kind of disappointed in that announcement, weren't they? So there, there you go. The, that is outside the echo chamber in the mainstream world of news coverage. The impression from mom is that the iPhone 4S announcement was disappointing. Yeah. Wait, we'll discuss that if we start discussing the iPhone stuff. Yeah, we should. And uh, I actually, uh, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned getting that call. My brother-in-law who is, probably as far outside of the geek range as your mom uh he is a you know a regular guy uh he texted me to you know offer his condolences so i mean it's 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 clear that that people are aware 
of that, but he didn't see, you know, this was before the, um, this was before I think he was, you know, it was really, really, really in, in news. And anyway, it's just, it's interesting how it re it's, it, 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 it's so widely known who Steve Jobs is. As some people have said to me recently, they said, you know what? I didn't know until I was reading his uh, obituary that, that he was involved with Pixar. You know, people have said that to me. Um, and I think all, everybody makes the association with Apple, but maybe not necessarily with, with Pixar. He actually owned more of his fortune came from Pixar than from Apple. Maybe twice, double. Well, Disney, but yeah. Disney, sure. Yeah. Oh, finally, let's leave it. Let's go to actual right, follow-up. Let's go to follow So I talked about many shows ago, the the Netflix queue management thing that Gruber had mentioned where you get the, the movie stuck at the top of the queue. And I, I had uh, said that it, it would be best for you to just return that movie because it's just blocking up your queue and you're never going to watch it. But it feels bad to return it without watching it. And I was, I said it was something like the sunk cost fallacy where you've already, you've already incurred that loss best to just, you know, move on. Someone sent me, uh, I'm going to mangle his name again, Jonathan Plodre. Plodre, sorry, P-L-O-U-D-R-E. Sent a link to a better mapping of that. It's a, a, a cognitive bias called hyperbolic discounting. Uh, that's reading from his mail here. Uh, this is where we all think that our future selves are more trustworthy than than we currently are. So it's sort of like saying, someday I'll watch this movie, but tonight I'm going to watch something that's like schlockier, right? So it's saying, someday I'll watch Saving Private Ryan, but tonight I'm going to watch Iron Man. Right. Uh, you just always assume that you of the future will live up to the ideals that you set for yourself. Not like the you of the present who just wants to eat pizza and watch some cruddy B movie. Uh, so I put a, show, a link in the show notes to hyperbolic discounting, which is a much better... I think so. We have some complaints about things that we say on the show. This is Jonathan, Jonathan, not John Topley. Said, could you please stop saying that you could care less? I did this myself in a mm, recent show, right. and I heard myself saying it, and I wondered if someone would say it. But he says that you say it more than I do. I hadn't noticed you saying it. But this is one of those things. Well, first of all, misspeaking on podcasts. I do it all the time, and I'm amazed that people don't call me on it. Like on, on the show three shows ago, I said Microsoft PSP. Not a single person called me on that. Probably because it I should immediately have been followed Sony it up. PSP. Yeah, I immediately followed it up by talking extensively about how Sony did X, Y, and Z with the PSP. So it was clear from context of the rest of the show that I understood that the PSP came from Sony. You but know, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you in your case what it is is that you're clearly intelligent, and in fact, you you speak with such authority that you could say something. For example, like Apple's new version of Windows is horrible, and people would actually before they would correct you they would question their own concept of reality and i get i guess apple is the one behind windows they would or, or maybe i just talk really fast uh, i think it's the former but you do talk but at, fast. at any rate yeah so uh that's misspeaking but the, the could care less thing that's one of the situations where the the nonsensical version of that i don't know what you would call that colloquialism i don't, I don't know i'm not sure what the correct uh word for that would be we all say that so much. We all know what you mean. The, the one that, that, that I find uh, most annoying, uh, we all have our pet peeves, is uh, lowest common denominator, which makes no sense mathematically. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not even the mathematical reality of that phrase is not what's meant by, by the, you know. But, but when someone says lowest common denominator, we all know what they're talking about. Uh, I'm going to get back to what I talked about in that writing show, uh, is that 
all this stuff, we all have our peeves, and it's, it's better to be correct, uh, and it's better to say couldn't care less instead of could care less. But let's not forget that the purpose of speech and writing is to communicate. Uh, and if we're successfully communicating, like even, even this guy complaining about it, he knows what we meant. He doesn't like the fact that the phrase doesn't actually mean that because it, it, it's you know, the same way I don't like lowest common denominator. But we have successfully communicated, right? I mean, people understand what we mean. Yeah, and, and sometimes saying it the wrong way has better success at communicating than saying it the right way. Like if something, if, if I didn't say lowest common denominator, but I said greatest common denominator, people will think, for, like, does he mean the opposite of what I know to be the traditional meaning of lowest common denominator? And they get confused. And it's, you know, English, the English language is weird. Grammar is weird. Usage is weird. And even in phrases that make no logical sense, eventually they just take on these weird meanings. So, uh, I think we should say couldn't care less, but when we say could care less, I don't think that they're, I, I think it's still successful communication. So that's what I want to say to John Topley, who was very nice, who gave pronunciation of his name, T-O-P hyphen L-E-E, Topley. But I think it would have got them going without his help. But I encourage other people like Jonathan Plodre to please provide pronunciation Pl- with your Plodre. name. Unless you want me to mangle it. Yeah. Plodre. Yeah. I mean, he's written in before, but I think you've made that same noise. Yeah. Crazy. That's how I pronounce his name. And yeah. people know what I mean. Yeah. To further uh, your point. So uh, another one, you, you know how you do the nosy in Syracuse? And you always you always say that. Uh, what was it? Some, someone wrote in, but you were saying <laughs> nosy. N- N-O-S-Y. <laughs> yeah, like like which, butting in. Or having a big nose, which I do. But that's... <laughs> it's that. <laughs> the main reason you say nosy is because uh, back when we first chatted on podcast, you had trouble pronouncing my name and you would always put the Z in it. And you still do. You backslide a lot. You will... You, people will hear uh, it. Because it start, sounds better. It's an upgrade. Yeah, I know, but you 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 slide back into that a little bit. But the one I've seen more recently is in the reviews, which thank you for everyone who's written a review. But recently, there's been a rash of reviews with Y, like S Y R A C U S A, because the, the city in New York, Syracuse, is S Y, uh-huh. and that's sort of the uh, the Americanization of the Italian city, which is actually spelled by like my last name. My name does not have a Y in it. And I think it's cargo culting because people are seeing the most recent review. Oh, and, and then they, they adopt review, it. They adopt yeah. this. Ah. They just copy and paste the name. They're like, oh, that, that previous reviewer must have known how to spell it. There is no Y in my name. Uh, so if you want to mix it up, Dan, you can do Syracuse and no Y. But I think you should keep doing no Z because that will help you remember. It's not Syracuse. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. Yeah. We've done the mnemonic before, right? If people want to remember how to spell it, it's Sir, S-I-R, because you've got three letters there. Then you've got A-C in the middle, which is the only part you have to remember, and then U-S-A, which should be easy for Americans to remember. <laughs> oh, Nosy. Yeah. Nosy. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars Blu-rays. We talked about Star Wars and the Blu-rays and all that business uh, a couple of shows ago, and I mentioned how I thought I might end up buying the original trilogy thing simply because The Empire Strikes Back is one of my favorite movies of all time and The Empire Strikes Back is the least adulterated by special edition stuff. There are no character-destroying moments like Greedo shooting first. There are no copy-and-paste-in people from the prequels like the ghosts in Return of the Jedi. There's certainly no additional Darth Vader no business when he's chucking the Emperor down. Yeah, you know. yeah, that's so terrible. <laughs> Empire, Empire is the least touched, and it is my favorite. So I figured, well, I, I would really like a high-definition version of that movie. So I was going to buy it, but before I did, I figured, let me just do a little more research, and I asked around on Twitter, and I said, for people who have bought it or people who know, 
but there's a bunch of special features that come with the Star Wars Blu-rays, like making of movies and never before seen interviews and X, Y, and you know, all that business. And I wanted those. And I said, do those special features only come with the big set that includes all the movies? Or are they also included with the, uh, with the original trilogy uh, box set, which just includes those three movies? And uh, the answer I got was that they, the special features are only on the big set. And then I asked, if I get the big set, are the special features, uh, are the original trilogy special features mixed in with the prequel special features? Like, you know, are they touching each other? And the answer was no, there are separate discs, one disc for special features for the prequels and one disc for special features for the real Star Wars movies. Uh, and so I actually did end up buying the full uh, Blue, Star Wars Blu-ray box set, which includes the prequels. And I would just simply never open those boxes just so I could get a high def version of Empire with minimal adulteration, even though the lightsabers are pink and there are some changes that make no sense, uh, like the additional scene was vader going back to his star destroyer but i get to see the special features uh of course the lucas always finds a way to get me so i put in the special features disc and i'm like "Ah, i'm gonna see these special features about these movies that i love and some of them are really neat but they all seem to play in this weird player window it's like like a computer desktop where there's a background and a little viewer screen and then the picture appears in the viewer screen so a i'm concerned about burning on my plasma i'm gonna be watching this movie that's filling up 80% of the screen, but there's this border around it. And B, make the thing fill the screen. We want to see the video. I don't care about the frame or the surroundings or want to see Tatooine in the background while I'm watching the video. Fill the screen with the video. It's supposed to be, if it's not high def, just stretch it. That, yeah, Lucas. Not a friend. (laughs) Not a Uh, friend. Yeah. I think that's all the, the follow-up we have to do. I'll, I'll, I want to talk briefly about Siri in a little bit of the time we have left. We don't have time to go through the whole announcement. Well, Maybe the, we, we, we'll we just want to clear up. You have not bought an iPhone 4S. You, no, you, no. You, and, you, and you will not be buying one. I think it's a great phone, though. No, I won't be buying one. And uh, apparently there's some people who've been emailing me. They, there's a guy who started up, he started a website and he started taking donations uh, for people who would like for you to have an iPhone of any kind, an iPhone 4S or otherwise. And uh, he just started taking up donations. He hasn't raised a lot of money yet. And he's asked me if I would get behind this fundraising process to help you get an iPhone 4S. And as you've said on other shows, uh, in, including the special we did on the day of the event, uh, you said something like, "You well, you didn't want it because there's a data plan associated with it. And this guy's actually trying to raise enough money that would cover both the cost of the phone and the full cost of the data plan for the two-year contract. Uh, and I did not get back to him. I've not yet said, yes, I'm, I'll, I'll get behind this or not, because I pinged you about this. And I said, uh, what are you doing? And you, and you were still, you still said no. You still said no. Now, I'm sure if, if, you know, Merlin and Marco had asked if you wanted a toaster, you would have said no. Uh, and by the way, we have received emails about toasters saying in insert country name here, a toaster is a slot toaster. And what you have is a toaster oven. Well, th- that's the same here, but we just call it a toaster. But that's beside the point. The point is, it seems like you really just don't want one of these. So no, I, I would like a phone. What I don't want is people collecting money to buy me a phone. That's just messed up. 
I especially messed up because as far as I can tell, the people who like PayPal donated, the person who's organizing this now has your money. He should give it back to you. I, I can afford to buy myself an iPhone. If I buy an iPhone, I won't I won't default on my mortgage and my kids won't starve. I can I can buy myself an iPhone. It's just what I choose to spend my money on. And right now, I don't use a cellular phone. I'm not away from Wi-Fi enough to justify a $70 a month bill. It doesn't mean I can't afford a $70 a month bill. I can afford one. I could buy my whole family iPhones if, if I wanted to. I thought that would be an effective use of my money. But I would rather spend that money on other things, other fun things or whatever. Just put it in the kids' bank accounts for college, whatever. So please do not collect money to buy me an iPhone. A gift is one thing. Like uh, Marco and Merlin, you know, well, Marco at least, had met me at that point and knew me. And they both knew me from the podcast. And like when your friends buy you a gift... It's rude not to accept it. But when strangers try to give you a gift, like don't don't collect money from me. Please give those money back to those people. I right. appreciate the idea that they would like for me to have an iPhone. Someday I'm sure I will when the prices come down or when we can eventually justify it. I mean, like obviously when my kids get older, they're gonna want cell phones because all the kids are gonna have them and stuff. And at that point I'll be getting them iPhones. Like iPhones will enter my life. Don't worry. And I ha- I get access to iOS devices. I'm not deprived, but don't collect money from me. Please give it back to the people. I won't accept an iPhone that you give me i won't you know just the people should get their money back i appreciate this this is like that friend thing like you think you're friends with somebody i appreciate the idea that they want to do this and it's like they will feel bad that they couldn't do this thing because like they're giving it willingly they want me to have one it would make them happy for me to have one but i just think it's inappropriate so you don't want one from this yeah. And the, the problem comes in because I keep saying, well, I, I would like one if it was given to me for free. But that's not what I mean. I don't mean people go out and buy me a phone. I'm saying that I'm not rejecting it because I don't like the product. It's just a matter of what you spend your money on. I don't have an Apple TV either. But that doesn't mean that I don't I wouldn't like an Apple TV. I will, I'm going to get an Apple TV 3, but I figured let me wait it out. Let me wait on a few more versions, let the features come up and stuff like that. You know, it's I don't know if people can grasp that concept. The idea that I think the iPhone is a great product and if I had one, I would use one, but when it comes time to budget my money for what I want to spend it on, uh, I can't justify the expense of an iPhone simply because I'm just not away from Wi-Fi and in need of data services almost ever. You know, I just commute from my car from work to home, both of which have Wi-Fi, and that's it. So can I get in a little bit on Siri before we go? Please. Yeah, so like I said, we don't have time to go through the whole iPhone announcement maybe next week, but the Siri thing. Well, let's do the sponsor then. Oh, okay. All right. It's uh, it's Mailchimp, longtime sponsor. We love Mailchimp here. Uh, we use them for all of our newsletter stuff, everything that we do, uh, and that's what they do. They make it really, really easy to send newsletters. They help you design them. They help you share them on social networks. They completely integrate with the services you already use, whether it's Twitter or Facebook uh, or, or anything else, and including uh, analytics. I mean, it's all there. And they have really, really great software that lets you just get in and very quickly make a newsletter that uh, that works. And you can uh, control as much as you want the process, whether it's sending out the test emails, whether it's creating a text-only plain text alternative to your graphical uh, one. And by the way, there are tons of templates that you can choose from that are all designed by professional, well-known designers. Uh, you can start with them and just use them stock or customize them. Uh, but it's great, and you can send up to 12,000 emails per month, every month, for free, and you can do that forever. You can check them out at MailChimp.com. There's never been a better time to sign up than now. They just had signed up their millionth uh, user. These guys are great, and if you have questions, they're there to help, and they, real people will answer, and real people will help you. So uh, check them out. 
Thanks to them very much for supporting us for, for so long and going forward, MailChimp.com. Apparently, we can't get off this buying an iPhone thing. I got a few more comments that I saw come up in the chat room. One is everyone saying, why not get an unlock phone? Why not get, uh, why not get one, unlock it, and use your SIM card from your current prepaid phone, so on and so forth. I, I said in the, in the episode six or whatever we talked about iPhones, I don't want to deal with the whole... I don't want to pay for an unlocked phone. And I don't want to deal with the whole unlocked and, and you know, uh, jailbroken stuff. So for the things that are gray market slash illegal, I don't want to deal with that hassle. And for the things that aren't, like buying an official unlocked phone from Apple, uh, that costs a lot of money. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help me to get an unlocked phone like that because you still have to pay for a data plan if you want to use it, right? And the thing uses a significant amount of data. So if I buy a 200 megabyte data plan, it's just, I, I don't want the monthly bill. It's, Buying an unlock one is a suggestion that people keep saying that I don't, I just don't want the bill. Unlocked phone doesn't get free data, doesn't get free voice. Even the voice bill, people think, oh, it's the data plan that's the problem. Voice is, I pay like $8 a month for my voice and I use almost none of it. It's like for emergencies, if my car breaks down, that's what I use my cell phone for. Or if I'm on the road and need to call about picking up a kid from daycare or school or something, that's what I use my phone for. Almost nothing for nothing else. Uh, and someone was suggesting that the people who are collecting money that they should just give it to charity. I don't think that's fair either because the people who gave that money thought they were giving it to buy a phone for somebody and something that would make them feel good. They didn't give it for the person who collected the money to pick a charity. They also didn't give it for me to pick a charity. The person who collected that money should give the money back to the individual people because the thing that they wanted to give the money for is not going to happen. And so they should be allowed to decide what happens to their money. They shouldn't say, oh, uh, you know, that person gave their money to some sort of research organization for cancer or something. That's not what they gave the money for. It's not fair. So I think the people should get the money back. All right, Siri. So, did you see the uh, the Apple ad with the, with the dude jogging? Yes. He's like, uh, make this appointment. Oh, you got another appointment at that time. All right, move it to send a text message to my wife, blah, blah, blah. These things, the Siri thing is kind of cruel because people who watch this ad and the ad is made to do this People know that AI doesn't exist, artificial intelligence. But people watch this ad, even people who should know better, and, and they think it's AI, right? And it's not. And that's, I think, going to be a problem of expectations in reality. In reality, I think this thing will work great when you have a limited vocabulary and we have enough processing power to get recognition to work right. But it's going to work like a text adventure game where... You have to learn the vocabulary. Like when you're a kid, you get you learn like what do you, you know move couch or you know push lever pull lever use x on y. You learn when you're a computer nerd, you start learning the the, the grammar that this game engine understands, and that's after eight thousand times of the game engine coming back to you saying, "I don't understand x y. I don't know how to yank. I don't know how to leap. I don't know how to jump. Uh, question not understood. Command not." You go through a ton of that before you figure out the vocabulary of the game so that when you're in the final dungeon or whatever, you can just rattle off the commands that you know will fit into the grammar of the thing. Siri has a grammar, too. It has a set of things that it can do. It's more flexible than those old text adventure games where you can phrase things in different ways and use synonyms and so on and so forth. That's, that's why it's an advance in technology. It's, it's a better recognition engine. And by the way, it's not the speech component. As far as I understand, Siri came up with the part that figures out what the heck you're saying textually. But the speech recognition part that turns what you said into text commands is separate. So, so Siri is, is the thing that's trying to uh, 
parse your English sentence. Uh, I, I don't know how I can. I keep messing up. People are going to hear that. I think it's speech recognition. But anyway, it's the it's the understanding engine. But it is not AI. It will not understand you like a secretary would. It's not going to work like it does in that video, especially for regular people who don't know the vocabulary. Now, you're going to have one or two magical experiences where you say something and it happens to actually work, but you're going to spend a lot of time, I think, figuring out what you have to say. Now, this doesn't this doesn't mean that Siri is bad. Siri is great because for the people who do learn the vocabulary, even if you just learn one piece of vocabulary, even if you just learn the reply to text message thing, that will let you reply to someone's text message without taking your hands off the wheel or without taking your phone out of your pocket or, you know, or look something up quickly if, you're, if you just want to look up a restaurant and you don't want to type it out with your little thumbs. Once you learn those one or two little commands that you will actually use, it will be a great addition. And I think this is great technology and it's going to make the iPhone 4S well worth buying over the iPhone 4. But you will have to learn those, those commands, essentially. It's not going to be a magical, helpful person that you talk to. and It's not, it's not going to be your secretary. And I fear that everybody watching that ad thinks it's going to be their secretary. And they're going to bring the thing home, and they're going to start talking to it, and it's just going to bounce right off of it because they have no idea what, the, what things it understands and it doesn't. And that's even before you get into the possible problems with the actual speech recognition part, the translation of your speech into text. Someone's saying that natural language processing is the process of understanding the text and the meaning behind it. And then before that is the barrier of translating what you said into a text command. So I fear for the Siri backlash kind of a Doonesbury eggs freckles moment for Siri. But, uh, I, but I do think it's, it's going to be a great addition simply because typing stuff on that little keyboard is sometimes fumbling in a pain. And if there's something that you do frequently as part of your daily routine, like replying to text messages or making a quick appointment without having to open up the, the calendar app and tap around and stuff, if you can figure out, because you do that 100 times a day, and you get a hang of like, how this works in Siri and what command Siri knows, this will be a huge boost to your efficiency, not to have to go pecking in there with your fingers. Uh, but it is not going to be uh, a, a magic robot. It's not going to be Hal. It's not going to be a secretary. So, If you say so. I mean, it, don't, don't you get that fear, that layperson fear when you see that ad? No. You're like, it, it's not going to work like that. It, no, it, I, think it, I, it, I think it will work like that. And no. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it will not. I mean, that's the <laughs> thing about the nerds, though, because the, like, we'll figure it out the same way we figure out those text adventures. We'll figure it out in a day or two, and we'll know exactly what you can say and you can't say. And we'll want to show it off to people, and you'll say, hey, mom, check it out. Look, here, take this phone, and now tell it to do whatever. And she'll be like, tell it what? And she'll say something, and you're like, no, you have to say it like this. And she's like, why do I have to? No, it's understand. It's going to be, it's not going to be like it is in the ad. And because we don't have AI yet. And, and that's, that's the worst part of the real AI people who don't know that we don't have AI. I don't, don't understand the current state of technology and artificial intelligence and how far we are from anything that comes even remotely close to what they would consider AI. And when it does what they want, like one or two things in a row, when it does what they want, they're like, see, it knows, it's thinking, it's smart. Like, it's, yeah. When we actually get AI, boy, that'll, that'll be great right up until it enslaves us and kills us all. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but we don't have it yet and series not it so i think it's a great feature they'll be really useful they will also have a humongous backlash i hope i'm wrong about the backlash part but we'll see so Is that it? That, that's, that's it yeah i have many more things in the iphone announcement i'm sorry that we still have the tail end of the windows 8 stuff uh 
I don't know if we'll even do that at this point. I will want to talk about what's wrong with Microsoft eventually. So yeah. And the next yeah, time we it, the next time we talk, I'll have an iPhone for us. And yeah, I'll be and you using can, Siri. You can use Siri on the air. Yeah. Siri. Please call John Syracusa. Mm-hmm. Nosy. Can you, can, nickname, nickname for me in the address book, Nosy. I was going to say, can you can you assign? You know how, like, uh, in, in at least in in your favorite uh, science fiction world in Star Trek, uh, you know they are they, to activate the computer to start talking to the computer. The computer, and then it it listens. It starts and it starts talking to you. You don't have to do that with Siri. You have to hold down the the button or something. But I'd like yeah. to name I if I could I would I would give an, a name to Siri and then it would always be listening. See then you know you got real AI when it's always listening. Well, Apple did that with speech recognition in classic macOS where you could assign a name to your computer and it would wait for the name. There was different modes. You could still hold down a key and make it do it. But the one mode I didn't was, know you could it was all it could always listen. Yeah, it could listen for your for its name and then do what you said. And the default name was computer. Uh, my friend of mine was telling me he remembered back in the day when he was that they first got their first set of six sixty AVs. Remember those? You know, remember the AV series of, yeah, of Macintoshes? Those are great. So anyway, he would yell across the, the office to the guy's computer, <laughs> computer, shut down, and it would shut down. That's great. <laughs> With no, no, no uh, confirmation coming. Right. Yeah, so the, the naming the thing and pushing the button is much better. That will help a lot uh, because people kind of understand that from walkie-talkies. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to you getting your phone, assuming it ships on time and assuming you don't break it in the interval between no, the time you get it and no, the time so I, use a, I use a case. Are you getting the Apple Care Plus? Mm. You should. Reply hazy. You should get it. It's too late now. You have to get it when you buy the phone. If you didn't order it now, I think you can't get I it. I think you phone. can. No, I think that was I think the you have idea. 30 days. You, gotta, you can get Apple Care. You can't get the Apple Care Plus. Nah, the I'm plus not, thing I'm is like if you drop it in the toilet, they'll give you a new nah, phone. I'm for not I don't need that. We'll see how uh, how well Faith does with her uh, naked iPhone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it'd be on her to replace it if she busted. As an as an employee of this company, you get a, you get an iPhone. Mm-hmm. It's part of your standard, you know. But you don't get a second iPhone. No, definitely not. So uh, that's it. But we will be back. We will be back next week, and uh, people can follow you on Twitter. At uh, as just at Syracuse, no why. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We appreciate all of you who have uh, gone in and reviewed and rated the show. Please keep doing that. Please keep doing it. And you can hear previous episodes of this show and all of the other shows that we do on 5x5 just by going to 5x5.tv. I always get email from people uh, where they say, you don't cross-promote the other shows enough. I didn't know that there were any other shows besides Hypercritical on 5x5. Uh, there are. And uh, and then I, I promoted a few. Then I actually felt bad, and I said, maybe I don't promote enough. So I promoted a few of the shows, and then I got more emails saying, and this was inaccurate, by the way, but you only promoted the shows you were on. And I said, that's not true. I promoted the web ahead. I promoted Mac Power users. And uh, and I, I also did promote... Uh, like Andy and Otko's new show, which I am on. But just, so don't, just, how about this? Just go to 5x5.tv. There's a lot of cool shows there. We'd love for you to listen to them. Um, please go there, right? I mean, that seems, seems reasonable, right, John? And write a review. It's a good chance to write a little essay. Yeah. Thank you, John. See you next week. Yep. <laughs>